This is Africa Digest. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Mozambican Defense and Security Forces announced the arrest of a man accused of recruiting new members for the Islamist terrorist group operating in the northern province of Cabo de Galdo. According to reports, the suspect recruited 72 young men to join the jihadists. Mozambican security sources say the man has been moving constantly between the district affected by the terrorist attacks, other parts of Cabo de Galdo and Nampula City, where it is thought that he owns a house. The World Health Organization says it will soon publish guidelines on how countries can hold safe elections during the COVID-19 pandemic. Countries such as Malawi and Burundi received heavy backlash for campaigning via big social gatherings amidst the pandemic. At least 20 countries, including Tanzania, Belize, Ghana, the United States, are scheduled to head to the polls between now and the end of the year. U.S. President Donald Trump has been criticized for continuing to campaign in person despite testing positive for COVID-19, the WHO's Executive Director for Emergencies, Dr. Mike Ryan. We've seen many examples over the last nine months where elections have actually been held very safely. We've worked very closely in the past uh, in the same way we've done for all types of mass gatherings and we've worked on a risk management approach. You cannot reduce the risk to zero, but what you can do is identify and manage those risks, especially where in-person voting is the choice of the country. We don't specify to any country what the proper choice is for the type of election they need to run. That is based on their own risk assessment. But we do offer them advice on how to reduce those risks if in-person elections are the way forward. And in fact, we're working right now on finalizing specific guidance for countries who choose in-person elections, learning from the last eight, nine months as to what has worked in those circumstances, and we'll be issuing that guidance in the coming days. South Africa's International Relations and Cooperations Minister Dr. Naleri Pandro is expected to chair the 37th session of the Executive Council of the African Union. The Tuesday session is the first meeting of the AU Executive Council to be held virtually due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Minister Pando will proceed over the session in a capacity as the chairperson of the Executive Council of the AU. 
Some chiefs in the southern region of Malawi have backed an amendment of the abortion law that allows for the termination of unwanted pregnancies under certain conditions. The chiefs are persuading members of parliament to pass the termination pregnancy bill when it is tabled for debate during the current sitting of the National Assembly. Under Malawi's penal code, abortion is illegal. However, studies show that the number of Malawian women treated every year for complications arising from unsafe procedures is on the rise. Lastly, Sweden has registered over 2,000 new COVID-19 cases in the last four days. That's according to the latest health agency statistics. This takes total to 100,654 since the start of the pandemic. Sweden has shunned lockdowns, leaving most schools, restaurants and businesses open for business. Sweden registered five new deaths since Friday, bringing the total of 5,899 dead. Sweden's death rate per capita is several times higher than Nikudin neighbors, but lower than countries that opted for lockdown. Your sports news are up next with Musibudi Makura. Thank you, Onelo. Good evening, sports fans. Football Association of Malawi has confirmed the Malawi 2020-2021 football season, which was scheduled to return on the 14th of November, while the Charity Shield Cup will now start on the 21st of November because the earlier date clashes with the national team's 2022 Africa Cup of Nations fixture. The new season was set to begin back in March, but was put on hold because of the government directive to suspend all sporting activities in the country due to the coronavirus outbreak. Meanwhile, the association has also approved the participation of the Malawi Senior Women's National Team in the Kosafa Women's Championship scheduled for November in South Africa. On to cricket news, Pakistan's upcoming three-match one-day international series against Zimbabwe has been shifted to Rawalpindi due to logistical reasons. Multan was scheduled to host the 50-over matches, which will now be played at the Pindi Cricket Stadium from the 30th of October. The subsequent three-match T20 series between the two nations will be played at Lahore's Gaddafi Stadium from the 7th of November. And finally, it's less than 24 hours before the resumption of South Africa's Telcom Netball Premier League. All teams are finalising their preparations ahead of the three-week competition. All matches will take place in a bar-secure bubble at the Mangawung Sports Centre in the country's Free State Province from the 14th up until the 27th of October. Now, Dumisani Chauke, the assistant coach of the country's national netball team, the Spa Proteus, will be coaching one of the teams in this year's competition, and that is the Gauteng Far Balls and Shia Adlions her plans ahead of the start of the competition. Uh, the goal for this year with the uh, Houghton Golden Fireballs is just for the team to compete, hopefully get a top four finish. Uh, I mean, the past couple of years, the Fireballs have been wallowing at number number five and number six. Um, so this year we, we are looking to compete. We are looking to have a top four finish, um, even dream as far as getting a top three finish. And um, that is what we are working towards right now. And those are your sports news at the Sour. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's start off in Zimbabwe, where the main opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, led by Nelson Chamisa, has declared its books, I and the Black, 
after a 2019 public audit. Despite losing nearly $7 million to their rival MDC led by uh, Tokozani Kupe, the party has remained afloat owing to contribution by a steady support base and donations. This is the first time such an audit has been made by an opposition political party in Zimbabwe putting pressure to government and the ruling parties on UPF to declare their financial status. More from our correspondent Simon Muchemwa reporting from Harare in Zimbabwe. Following the decision by government to divert political parties' funds meant for the Nelson Chamisa-led Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, to Tokozani Kupe, the party has remained afloat. This was revealed in the capital Tuesday when the party treasurer, General David Coltart, presented the 2019 financial audit report. MDC becomes the first opposition party in Zimbabwe to have offered to have its books audited in a bid to show levels of transparency and accountability. According to the report, the bulk of the funds came from the government owing to the existing Political Parties Act. This is a law that forces government to pay any political party that would have garnered a certain number of votes in a general election. David Coltard had this to say regarding the financial state of his party. So these accounts show that we were in the black at the end of the year. Uh, obviously with the cutting off of government funding, and I stress illegally this year, this is a complete breach of the Constitution and the political party's finance act. The cutting off of that money with a membership support base running into hundreds of thousands and the transferring of that money to a political party that at best has 45,000 supporters had a critical effect, a damaging effect, obviously on our cash flow. But I'm happy to report that because of the rejuvenization of, of our party and our new website and other things that the SG and I have been working hard on, we are back in the black. MDC has had its own fair share of challenges recently after the Supreme Court ruled that Nelson Chamisa's rise to power after Morgan Changra's death in 2018 was unconstitutional. This resulted in funds meant for Chamisa's party to be diverted to MDC led by Tokozani Kupe. Coltat explained. The funds referred to in this document are public funds that were, were handed to the party in terms of the Political Parties Finance Act. And we are going back to the public primarily to say that these are your taxpayers' monies that you worked hard to generate. This is how we spent them. And in doing this, we are saying that when Advocate Nelson Chamisa is President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, we will apply the standard that we are applying to ourselves, to every public institution and to our nation, so that state funds are correctly accounted for and properly spent. Coltat added. For the last 40 years of ZANU-PF government, we have seen the squandering of our wealth, where a tiny oligarch has become obscenely wealth, wealthy on the backs of poor people. But how has that happened? Because they have not been held accountable. They have squandered state resources, national resources for their own benefit at the expense of the people. How do we as a party intend tackling that? Well, it's a, a basic principle that charity begins at home, that we have to be the change that we want to see in society. The financial audit by MDC is the first of its kind in the history of Zimbabwean politics, a feat that has not yet been done even by the ruling ZANU-PF.
Fazema here. The party spokesperson demanded accountability on the ruling ZANU-PF and government. Now many have noted that no other political party in Zimbabwe has subjected itself to a public audit. This is true. As the MDC Alliance, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. As a government in waiting, transparency and openness are at the heart of our financial affairs. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Angola's president, Jao Lorenko, says his country has lost up to 24 billion U.S. dollars under the former administration of Jose Eduardo dos Santos, adding that over half of that money was diverted through fraudulent contracts with state oil company Sonangol. He has made the revelation in an interview with the U.S. business pay newspaper, The Wall Street Journal. Since he became president in 2017, Lorenko has made fitting, fight corruption one of his priorities, investigating and prosecuting his predecessors' family members for corruption and nepotism. For more on this, Channel Africa's Kumbala Mujalele spoke to Belamino van Dunen, Angolan economic expert, and he says although Angolans are concerned about the slow pace of investigations into the stolen money, the president's efforts are yielding the desired results. If you can read in this interview, President Lorenz said that uh, he maybe is uh, 24 billion for uh, the oil, diamond, and the other infrastructure in the country. And he have now, Angola maybe have achieved for 4 billion is enough. We have to work, continue to work, because uh, 4 billion in 24 billion is nothing. Uh, because the state have definitely recovered about 4.9 billion in cash and goods uh, so far, 2.71 billion in cash and 2.19 billion in real estate for the uh, factory. But uh, I think we, Angola, have to continue to work with the international community. But while some organizations such as uh, the Transparency International applaud uh, Lorenzo's anti-corruption intentions, in their eyes, Angola should already be in a new era after his three years in office. They want to see more investigations and a number of prosecutions increase. Do you agree with this assessment? Is right, okay, because you know the difficult now is that we are work, working with the own uh, personality of Edwele. This is the difficulty, the, the rule part in Angola. So, President Lawrence wants to go step by step because you have the same person in uh, in judiciary, you have the same person in states, we have the same person in all sectors. So it's very difficult to work like that. Just this much to go step by step. Uh, we, I think that the president is in a good way. So all of us, we have to continue to work because it's not easy. You're saying that uh, President Lorenzo is doing well uh, in terms of uh, recovering the stolen monies, but don't you think it will be his downfall if not much is being done in terms of investigations and uh, prosecutions of those who have uh, been involved in corrupt activities? be done in the right time, you know. We cannot cause what we can say, the, 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 the chaos 
in our state, is problem is in own ruling party person. They are, are here in Angola working. They have responsibility. None of them. So is my is my view that we have and we need to go step by step, not to be emotional and say, okay, who will continue to to to, to make this work that we are facing now? So I, I think step by step we will achieve our uh, the goals. And just this must to go, but we have to be rational. Do not to break the structure of our state. Uh, we agree. The president has also said that uh, the state oil company Sonangol will be listed on the stock exchanges such as uh, New York Stock Exchange soon after its restructuring. What do you make of these plans? Uh, Sonangol is the, the principal revenue in our in our country. So if we have transparency, if we can put Sonangol in this whole organization, the, the state can um, can achieve more about in revenues. So it's important. But before that, we have to work internet. We have to reorganize this uh, important enterprise of our country. Is uh, in my view not only Sonangol, maybe uh, Diamond uh, Enterprise must also be there because it's important for 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 the state. It's important for our people. And that's Belamino van Dunen, the Angolan economic expert on the line from the capital Luanda. He was talking to Kumbela Mujalele. A Ugandan woman refugee at Kakuma Camp in Kenya's northwestern county of Turkana is using the power of yoga to empower more than 200,000 other refugees through regular physical training as the country continues to fight COVID-19 pandemic. James Shimanyula reports. 27-year-old Rita Brown arrived in a Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya from Uganda in 2000 after fleeing conflict between a rebel group and the local community. Rita was only seven years old. Her father and mother were killed in the conflict. Rita is one of 14 professional refugee yogis in the camp. She has moved her classes online because of COVID-19 restrictions, reaching thousands of people with her message of self-acceptance and mental well-being. According to Rita, Yoga combines physical exercises, mental meditation, and breathing techniques to strengthen the muscles and relieve stress. Yoga is for all age. Yoga is for all body size. Yoga is for everybody. I used to think I'm not love. I used to think everything I passed through was like a destiny which God had planned for me that I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life. But since I joined yoga mentally, spiritually, emotionally, I felt like yoga really changed me. I feel like uh, being in a camp for so many years is so much traumatizing for like uh, a child, a mother, a father, anybody living in a camp. Rita took up yoga at the Nairobi-based Africa Yoga Project. After completing her training, 
She started offering classes to fellow refugees and humanitarian workers in Kakuma as well as online yoga lessons. I do online class, that is Zoom and Facebook, or one-on-one class with one or two people because of social distancing. I'm giving it all my strength, all my everything to change the life of someone who has suffered or who is suffering. Yoga is a philosophy which first developed in India. Indians believe that physical exercises help people to become calmer and united in spirit with God. At this time when Kenya is fighting COVID-19 pandemic, psychosocial counselors have been providing virtual counseling to people of concern, including those in quarantine and isolation facilities. Toll-free helplines are also available to ensure people have unhindered access to counselors and other mental health services. Lynn Waivera Karanja, a Kenyan psychologist, sheds light on mental health. Mental health doesn't begin at home. It begins with even how we look at ourselves, how we start in the morning. We find that there are so many people to be accompanied, there are so many people to be served, there are so many people to be advocated for, especially when it comes to mental health and psychosocial issues, which we know even with the COVID-19, that number has increased. It's a universal problem that can be dealt with everyone and with anyone. Waithera emphasizes that mental health is all about a person's mindset and how that person takes it because if a person's mindset is positive, everything will be positive. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to Alert Level 1. The move to Alert Level 1 will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. The South African Drug Policy Initiative says the current draft bill on cannabis does not reflect the spirit of the 2018 Constitutional Court ruling which declared existing legislation criminalizing the use, possession and cultivation of the product for private use unconstitutional. More from Dr. Keith Scott of the South African Drug Policy Initiative. The Constitutional Court ruling in essence uh, was to allow people to grow and use cannabis in their private spaces. And so that's the, the, we expect the bill to carry the spirit of that ruling, you know, in, in brief. How the bill doesn't uh, fulfill that uh, spirit of the Concord ruling is that it doesn't take into account the fact that millions of South Africans don't actually have a private space to grow or use cannabis. The regulations that they've got in the bill at the moment are very punitive. There are four different categories of offences, and they all carry a potential incarceration, uh, a criminal record and incarceration sentence uh, up to 15 years. 
And um, so if you look at the regulations, they're very strict. They're very restrictive as, as far as people can use it. Because even in their own spaces, if people are living in, a say, a shack or a hut and they've got a small window, they're not allowed to smoke in the presence of people who don't want them to smoke cannabis or in the presence of children. And if they want to use cannabis, they have to go outside uh, that dwelling, which is maybe one room, often one room with a lot of people. They have to go outside. And outside for most of those people is, is a public space, like a road. And uh, according to the bill, people aren't allowed to use cannabis or, or display it in a public place. You're not even allowed to show that you've got a bag of cannabis with you. So that's, uh, the bill actually excludes uh, millions of South Africans because people who've got the spaces and living in you know, a house with several rooms or maybe a garden or a yard, they can use it, they can grow it. And therefore, it's, it's, it's actually a totally discriminatory bill. Now, what's the likely consequences if the bill uh, becomes law in its current form? Well, I, I imagine that uh, certain uh, uh, people and organizations will challenge the bill in the courts. I'm not uh, familiar with the processes. Uh, we've got uh, criminologists and, and legal counsel in our organization, so they will decide what's next. Uh, but certainly people and outside our organization are, are making those same noises that uh, you, you can't allow a bill uh, which is meant to be uh, for for everybody to exclude people. It has to go to uh, another level if they try and promulgate it in its present fashion. Do you think um, this bill, as they say, will help tackle um, organized crime related to the, the, the trade of cannabis? And really, what are some of the dangers of um, enacting prohibitory laws like this? Well, no, it won't make any difference at all to mm. the, the current uh, uh, hold that organized crime has on, on cannabis, on the cannabis trade and other drugs. And, uh, you know, that's one of the other aspects of the bill that we, we, well, we're actually recommending it. We don't criticize the whole bill. We say, if you want to, if you want a fair bill, then allow everybody to use it. But it's interesting because if you take those millions of people that can't grow or use it, how do they get their cannabis? They would have to buy it. And that means that you have to legally regulate cannabis. And the way to do that is to put it in the same legal structures and regulations that we use to control the production, sale, and use of alcohol. It's, really, it's a very simple concept, and that is our recommendation because it's the only way that we are going to allow uh, everybody to benefit from the, 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 the legal use of, of cannabis. And at the same time, if you legally regulate cannabis, as you say, you will take away the trade from the criminal element and you will reduce crime in this country. But that is the only way to do it. You cannot just say it's decriminalized it, but not allow the trade. It actually doesn't work. Mm-mm. Now, written submissions, um, Dr. Scott, can uh, uh, be sent to Parliament until November 30th. Um, have you made your submission yet? Yes, well, we met the deadline of the, the 9th of October, the last person. Uh-huh. Now they've extended the deadline to the 30th, yes. And that was Dr. Keith Scott of the South African Drug Policy Initiative talking to Zikona Miso. South Africa's first national bank, FNB, has announced that individual consumers and institutional investors in South Africa will now have the opportunity to own shares from as little as less than $1 in some of the world's best-performing companies such as Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Tesla, Coca-Cola and Alphabet, which owns Google. Tutongobeni compiled this report. The announcement follows the listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange of 10 FNB exchange-traded notes ETNs, which are exchange-traded instruments that provide investors access to a wide variety of wealth creation assets. 
The listing provides individuals and institutional investors an opportunity to diversify portfolios to manage risk. CEO for FNB's share trading, Anissa Razak, explains. The importance of global diversification has been magnified during the global pandemic. The Johannesburg Stock Exchange represents less than a percent of global GDP and investors looking for international exposure need to do so in a manner that helps diversify risk through investment in companies and industries globally. Investing offshore has been on the lips of most South Africans as of late and although there is no guarantee that offshore investing will yield higher returns than locally, it is key to diversifying and balancing your portfolio risk. Diversifying a share portfolio not only relates to different sectors and asset classes, but geographic locations as well. Should the JSE experience slow growth post the pandemic, investments internationally may balance the overall portfolio performance, allowing returns to be made. Hence the statement, balancing your portfolio. To date, purchasing U.S. stocks required physically taking RANDs offshore and complying with tax thresholds, as well as opening international stockbroking accounts. Certain international shares, like Amazon, for example, are trading at over $3,000 per share, meaning investors need large amounts of capital to invest, and this is affordable for only a select few. FNB's new innovation allows investors to gain exposure to top global companies through listed exchange-traded notes on the JSE. There are currently 10 companies available for investors to select, and these include Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, Google, Apple, Netflix, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, and McDonald's. These international companies are some of the biggest by market capitalization in the world and are familiar to most investors due to their sheer presence globally and the impact on our daily lives. We have made access to these companies affordable and simple. You can gain exposure to these companies by purchasing these ETNs from as little as 10 Rand. Razak says an investor can decide if they want access to currency risk through the dollar-based ETN. Investors do not physically own the shares, however, obtain exposure to the company's performance based on the fluctuating ETN price. Meaning, if an Amazon ETN is purchased, the price of the ETN will increase based on the performance of the Amazon share itself. An investor can decide if they want access to currency risk through a dollar-based ETN or would prefer to hedge that risk through a RAND-based ETN. Since the offering is listed on the JSE as an exchange-traded note, it can be accessed through any stockbroker or online share trading platform. FNB will also assist their clients with regards to which companies they suggest investing in through their stock picks and educational podcasts, making international diversification that bit simpler. Investors will be able to gain access to the shares through FNB's share trading platform via FNB Online or the FNB app. The 10 exchange-traded notes from FNB were listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 1st of this month. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tutongobeni in Soweto. 17.30 Central African Time, here's Onelin Sinsu with your latest news headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. At least 12 people have been killed in the medical zone of Ethiopia. 
International celebrities have lended their support to Nigerians campaigning for an end to police brutality across the country. And the World Health Organization says it will soon publish guidelines on how countries can hold safe elections during the COVID-19 pandemic. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. The growing mobile ecosystem that has uh, become a playground for easy targeted mobile crime. Uh, this is according to South Africa's wireless application service providers, the association WASPA, which notes that missing data, unauthorized payments, illicit spam and ad fraud continue to plague the mobile ecosystem industry and are subsequently changing the fraud game. To find out how, Ilonka Bardenost, uh, who is the general manager at WASPA, now joins us on the line. Uh, Ilonka, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, Samora. Thank you very much for having us on the show. Now, Ilonka, how is the growing mobile ecosystem changing the fraud game? Well, by the end of 2019, more than 5.2 billion people had subscribed to mobile services globally. So clearly, mobile services are adding benefits and convenience and so much value to consumers from access to information, entertainment, um, fitness, mobile payment solutions. Unfortunately, this has now also created a playground for fraudulent activity and for criminal activity within this space. And what are some of the common mobile services fraud incidents faced by consumers? Uh, The most common types of fraud that we're currently seeing within the mobile space is unauthorized transactions and unauthorized billings. And these types of fraudulent activities are facilitated by things like kickjacking and malware application fraud. That is why it is of the utmost importance for consumers to read before they respond to any prompts or before they give permissions to any um, applications to ensure that they don't unwillingly or unwittingly expose themselves to services that get access to their data um, and then that fraudulent activity happens without their knowledge. And how is the industry regulated and where can consumers go to report incidences? So WASA was formed in 2004. We are a self-regulatory body with a mandate to regulate and self-regulate the mobile services industry. So any player that's within this industry, they have to become WASPA members. We've got a very strict code of conduct that all of our members have to adhere to. We also have teams that monitor the services within the market on a 24-7 basis. 
to ensure that these services adhere to the code of conduct and that consumers can use this with absolute confidence. But we also have a complaints department where consumers can lodge complaints in the event that they believe that they might have been a victim of fraud or that any service has not complied to our code of conduct. So although there might be fraudulent activity, the industry is extremely regulated. We do have very strict rules and regulations, and all of our members have to adhere to it. But if consumers feel that something's gone wrong, they can visit us at www.wasper.org.za, and we will then assist them as far as we possibly can. All right, uh, Ilonka, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that's Ilonka Bardenost, who is the General Manager at South Africa's Wireless Application Service Providers Association, WASPA, joining us on the line. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to Alert Level 1. The move to Alert Level 1 will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. Islamabad High, High Court has now appointed Dr. Amir Khalil, a veterinarian uh, at the Vienna-based Global Animal Welfare Organization, Four Paws, as amicus curiae uh, and assigned him with the logistical organization and execution of Kavan's relocation from Pakistan to Cambodia. In early September, Four Paws gave the green light for the elephant's transfer after medically examining him. Now, the transfer from Magaza Zoo in Islamabad to the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary is planned for the end of November and is supported by the NGO Free the Wild. Its co-founder, U.S. superstar Sher, has been fighting for elephants depart- for the elephant's departure since 2016. With relocation of Kavan, not only will Pakistan 
uh, Pakistan's last Asian elephant leave the country, but the infamous zoo in Islamabad will finally close. MJ Lawrence is the head of communications at Four Paws in South Africa and joins us on the line. MJ, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Samora. Thanks for having me. Uh, MJ, how did Kavan get to be a lonely elephant? So, in the early years before, yeah, upon his arrival, um, he was a gift from Sri Lanka in 1985. And his partner that lived with him um, died in 2012. So for the past few years, past eight years, he's been living by himself. And that's why he's been dubbed the loneliest, the world's loneliest elephant. And um, amongst everything that's happening, uh, the High Court ruled earlier in this year that the zoo needs to be closed. And Four Paws was approached um, then with the local authorities and the Islamabad Wildlife Management Board um, where there was an incident uh, where two lions uh, suffocated due to smoke inhalation. They were trying to um, force them into transport crates and um, that didn't go well and resulted in their death and that's when we stepped in um, in July. Um, yeah, and for Kavan, the elephant, to live by himself, obviously, um, is a very traumatic experience in itself. They are uh, social animals that live together. And um, in relocating him to the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary, you'll hopefully find a partner there. All right. And now that the High Court has given this order, what's the next step? So, first, we... um, we arrived there, and like with Kavan, the elephant, um, he was initially very aggressive um, and untrustworthy towards people. Um, and Dr. Amir Khalil, that you mentioned earlier, um, has to win his confidence, so to have uh, done the medical check. And what was quite interesting is he sang uh, Frank Sinatra's um, I Did It My Way, and that kind of started a bond between the two, which is very unusual, but it worked, and um, we did the medical check on him. He was clear to travel, so at this moment, the team is currently preparing to build a crate that needs to um, house Kavan, and which he needs to be trained to go into before his departure. So you can imagine it's quite a logistical operation to create a crate for an elephant that is more than three meters high and weighs more than five tons. And then we are also um, organizing the logistics with an aircraft carrier that can travel, uh, take Kavan back to Cambodia where he will spend the rest of his life then. Um, yeah, and in the meanwhile, while we're busy with that, it's also helping to transfer some of the other remaining 30 animals um, within Pakistan and then also finding other solutions for them if they are not able to live in appropriate sanctuaries in Pakistan itself. And do you think Kavan will adapt to the new environment? I mean, Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary in comparison to the current Magaza Zoo? Say again? Do you think that Kavan will adapt to the new environment at uh, the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary in, compo- uh, in, in comparison to the current Magazu? Oh, okay. I th- yes, they are quite adaptable animals. Um, and it will be, obviously, in the initial phases, there are adaptation periods 
where they are first introduced into a smaller area where they can get used to the um, new environment, the smells, um, all of the different kind of new um, surroundings that are there for them to get used to. And there's been an integration program where it's slowly, it's an entire process to get that animal um, then reintroduced into a new area. And our team, obviously Dr. Amir, has a lot of experience with previous rescues that we've done in countries like Gaza, um, Aleppo, Syria. And yeah, then that process is followed. And we also always make sure that before we do this, we determine whether that is the best solution for the animal. And in this case, it is. All right, MJ, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Amora. Have a lovely afternoon. You too. And that's MJ Lawrence, Head of Communications at Four Paws in South Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The World Health Organization's Director General, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, has reacted to some recent discussions about the concept of reaching so called herd immunity to COVID by letting the virus spread. Speaking during a virtual press briefing in Geneva, Switzerland, the DG clarified that herd immunity is actually achieved by protecting people from a virus and not by exposing them to it. Dr. Gabriel Seuss also argued that the herd immunity approach would be scientifically and ethically problematic to use in response to the pandemic. Herd immunity is a concept used for vaccination in which a population can be protected from a certain virus if a threshold of vaccination is reached. For example, herd immunity against measles requires about 95% of a population to be vaccinated. The remaining 5% will be protected by the fact that measles will not spread among those who are vaccinated. For polio, the threshold is about 80%. In other words, herd immunity is achieved by protecting people from a virus, not by exposing them to it. Never in the history of public health has herd immunity been used as a strategy for responding to an outbreak, let alone a pandemic. It's scientifically and ethically problematic. First, we don't know enough about immunity to COVID-19. Most people who are infected with the virus that causes COVID-19 develop an immune response within the first few weeks but we don't know how strong or lasting that immune response is. 
or how it differs for different people. We have some clues, but we don't have the complete picture. There have also been some examples of people infected with COVID-19 being infected for a second time. Second, the vast majority of people in most countries remain susceptible to this virus. Seroprevalence surveys suggest that in most countries, less than 10% of the population have been infected with the COVID-19 virus. Letting the virus circulate unchecked therefore means allowing unnecessary infections, suffering and death. And that's the voice of Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, Director General of the World Health Organization. He was speaking during a virtual press briefing in Geneva, Switzerland. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event. I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. The Bank of Tanzania says the banking sector has remained sound, stable and resilient in the last five years. It's attributed this to prudent supervision. Tanzania's economy is projected to grow at 5.5% this year against baseline projections of 6.9% before the outbreak of COVID-19. The central bank says government's decision not to impose a lockdown coupled with the reopening of other economies in this year's second half projected to lead to strong growth, albeit at a slower pace than the previous year. 
South Africa's Communications Minister Stella Ebeni Abraham says she's fully behind the Post Bank becoming South Africa's state bank. This is in keeping with the ANC's 2017 conference resolution. Indebeni Abrams says this is in light of the lack of transformation in the banking sector. She told Parliament's Communications Committee that she would like to copy countries like China where a number of banks have been established. This, she says, will increase competition and assist entrepreneurs. We would gladly be happy because we do believe there's a need to diversify and empower the state to have certain elements that it participates on in relation to the banking and also to allow for transformation of an industry that has really not been willing to transform but accommodate even those that are unbanked in order to access the service. So yes, did we not say we want to build an entrepreneurial state? We said so, and therefore we'll continue to introduce certain things and make certain changes when necessary. Zimbabwe's healthcare products provider MedTech Holdings has urged shareholders to exercise caution ahead of the company's plans to transform it into an investment holding company. MedTech revealed that it was in discussions which involved some transactions that will result in major changes. The company says it's also involved in discussions to purchase a majority stake in a private company. MedTech Holdings Limited specializes in manufacturing and marketing consumer products. It engages in the manufacturing, marketing and distribution of health, hygiene, beauty and pharmaceutical products. Funding to support informal traders in southern Africa has been given a boost. The United Kingdom will provide 1.3 million US dollars to implement a program with the International Organization for Migration. Informal traders rely on trading across borders for their livelihoods and income. UK Minister for Africa James Dudridge made the announcement during his visit to Malawi and Zambia last week. During his visit, Dudridge also announced further support to help cross-border businesses trade safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Informal cross-border trade accounts for up to 30 to 40 percent of regional trade across southern Africa. China has posted very strong trade figures for September, indicating that it's coping much better than other major economies with the coronavirus crisis. China was the first country hit by the virus and its economy appears to be the first to recover. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. Exports have been growing, initially fueled by demand for protective equipment such as gowns and face masks, but more recently by a recovery in orders for consumer goods. Analysts said the steep rise in imports could be partly explained by companies buying technology products before the US imposed restrictions on sales to China. But demand for industrial commodities also picked up, suggesting that investment in infrastructure and property remained strong. The U.S. dollars trading at 379.31 Nigerian Naira, 11.33 Botswana Pula, 107.45 Kenyan Shilling and 20.08 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollars trading at 5.52 Brazilian Hail, 76.88 Russian Ruble, 73.11 Indian Rupee, 6.71 Chinese Yuan, and at 16.49 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,921 and platinum at $870 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $42.47 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective.